When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have back on the podcast Dr. Charles Reed to tell us about his most recent book, uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2023, uh, titled Calming the Storms, the Carry Trade, the Banking School and British Financial Crises Since 1825. This book is really quite important. Um, it tells us about the rise of the carry trade. It tells us about why Britain had a bunch of financial crises, why Britain stopped having financial crises, and perhaps most relevantly, explains why we keep having financial and banking crises now. Um, a fun little fact, the book was actually officially launched the night before the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, um, which is quite relevant to the contents of the book that we're going to go into. Charles, I'm so pleased that you're back on the podcast to share your expertise with us. Thank you for having me back, Miranda. Before we get into um, all of the historical and current information included in the book, could you maybe start us off by introducing yourself a bit? So my name is Dr. Charles Reed. I'm an economic historian at Cambridge University, and I've recently published two books. The first one was The Great Famine in Ireland and Britain's Financial Crisis. And my second one, this book, is calming the storms for carry trade, the banking school, and British financial crises since 1825. My research focuses on the relationship between economic policy and financial crises. And I suppose the big question, the big research question which unites my research is what can we learn from history about the relationship between economic policy and financial crises? And how can we prevent future financial crises from occurring? So why are you interested in banking crises in particular? Well, that's a very good question. And I suppose that can be partly explained by Lehman Brothers during the global financial crisis of 2008, collapsed during my first week as an undergraduate at university. And for people of my age in Britain, but not just Britain, across the Western world, this is a very important moment. Until then, in the first two decades of, of my generation's lives, 
there was growth each year. The economy was growing at two, two and a half, three percent reliably each year, particularly during the Great Moderation Period. That's 1993 to 2008. But since 2008, particularly in Britain, there has been no growth. So if the British economy had continued to grow at the same rate that it had before 2008, the British economy would be now 20 to 25 percent bigger than it actually is at present. And most of that growth has been lost as a consequence of the 2008 banking crisis. So what makes a banking crisis different from an economic crisis? Well, banking crises or recessions which involve banking crises are much worse than normal economic crises. They result in much deeper recessions. They result in slower recoveries. They also result in the growth which has been lost never being because the recession never never being clawed back. And they result in a much lower rate of growth after the banking crisis has occurred, compared with a a normal recession, which doesn't necessarily involve a banking crisis. Now, why do banking crises have this effect? So a banking crisis is a situation where the payment system or the banking system has a systemic collapse. So this isn't just one bank collapse. This is an entire section of the banking system collapses. Why are they so bad? Well, this is because this stops the banking system doing its job in the economy. So the job of the banking system in, in the economy is that it turns savings, so this is your surplus money that you earn um, and you don't spend, which gets put in the bank or gets put in other investments. A banking system is meant to convert back into investment to give to companies to build factories and offices and other investments, which creates jobs and creates productivity growth and creates economic growth overall. That's what the job of the financial or banking sector is, to convert savings into investment. But having a banking panic or a banking crisis, which results in many of those banks collapsing or the payment system being broken, that is just like having a heart attack in the system. And after a heart attack, a heart is not very good at beating blood around the system. And likewise, a banking crisis or in the aftermath of the banking crisis, a banking or financial system is not so good at turning savings into investment. And this is why we get slow growth after banking crises. This is why we end up with deeper recessions. This is why we end up with slower growth in their aftermath. And this also has political effects in that you see the rise of extremist voting after banking crisis. People initially are very forgiving in a normal recession of governments uh, because they see the downturn is only going to be temporary. But if there's a long period of slow growth afterwards, people get annoyed and they start blaming the government for and mainstream politicians for this slow growth. And you get the rise in extremist voting patterns. And you can quite clearly see that after the 2008 crisis with the rise in um, Trumpism in America, in Euroscepticism in Britain, in the hard and far right in continental Europe and many other countries as well. So the point is, is that the global financial crisis 2008 has defined 
the adulthood of my generation. And this really underscores why it's important to understand why these occur. And it's important for policymakers in particular, but also a wider interesting public to understand how can we prevent these? How can we avoid these? Because their effects are so catastrophic. So given that kind of interest um, in figuring out what happened and how we can possibly prevent it, how did that lead you to write this particular book? Well, this book, it came out of research for my first book. So my first book was about one particular financial crisis, the 1847 financial crisis, and how the effects of that contributed to a lack of money for relief efforts in Ireland during the Great Irish Famine of the late 1840s. But looking closely at that financial crisis, I realised that the scholarship, particularly economists and the way central bankers looked at that crisis, they really didn't understand what was going on in that crisis. Neither did they really understand what was going on in these financial crises in the middle of the 19th century, which were very regular. They were in 1825, 1837, 1839, 1847, 1857, and 1866. But then there were no severe policy-induced crises for a century. Now, there was a brief panic in 1914 caused by the outbreak of the First World War, but that wasn't policy-induced. That was caused by the um, unexpected shock of the First World War breaking out. But except with that one slight exception, there were no policy-induced crises until the 1970s. And few, if any, major advanced economies, certainly of Britain-sized, managed a record like that. In America, banking crises have been regular over that period. In Europe and in Central Europe in particular, they've also been very regular in that period. But in Britain managed to avoid having major ones. And I came to the conclusion that if we're interested, if policymakers, economists, economic historians, policymakers and ordinary people are, are interested in preventing a rerun of the 2008 crisis, we have to understand why did crises occur in history and how have they got away? Why did they go away over this period? And what can we learn from that period? And I felt that people really weren't looking at that period for lessons. Despite that, there was only two, at that stage, there were only two major banking crises in modern British history, 1973 to 75, and then 2008. But if we want to look at uh, you know, that question in the longer run, Two, two crises aren't enough data points to really understand the lessons from this. We have to look at more crises. But because there weren't any crises for so long, we have to look at the last time there were frequent and regular financial crises in the middle of the 19th century. We have to look at the late 19th century, the 1860s and afterwards, for why did those crises seem to fade away? And what lessons can we learn from that? So... My focus and my reason for writing this particular book was the thought that we have to look at this question in the long durée over the last two centuries. What can we learn from British financial history for our own time to make crises go away in the future or how to prevent future crises? And I was just about got the book published in time before Silicon Valley Bank collapsed um, in March this year. Yes, I think we're probably going to get into um, that as we go through. But now that we've sort of set the stage for kind of why 
what, first of all, what is a banking crisis and what are some of the effects and why we want to figure them out? Um, kind of part of the answer, at least to me, seems relatively obvious because thankfully you've put it in the title, right? Calming the storms, the carry trade is the first piece of the subtitle. So what was and is the carry trade? And why do you think it's been so relatively ignored in academic research to investigate these questions? So the carry trade is an important part of the book's argument in that this is one of the things which contributes towards financial crises or periods of financial vulnerability or fragility. And it's a form of investment strategy that central bankers and regulators need to keep an eye on when setting monetary policy in order to preserve financial stability in our own time. So the carry trade is an investment strategy in which money is borrowed by an investor in area, sector or countries of low interest rates and then is invested in area sectors or countries of higher interest rates. So basically, an investor is trying to make money from the spread. So they're borrowing where interest rates are low and investing where interest rates are very high. This causes capital flows between countries and between sectors of the economy. But the point is is that when those capital flows are disrupted, This is when you get periods of financial fragility, either in the place of low interest rate sending the money or the place with the high interest rate, which is getting the money, um, are both vulnerable to effects of this process suddenly stopping. Why has this been ignored in academic research? Well, I think the overall answer to that is that economic historians are generally interested in very long-run questions. And this is a question which doesn't doesn't really fit into that mindset. So the big basic question that economic historians are trying to answer is how has the world become rich in the last few centuries? So most people in the world, including the countries which are now regarded as part of the West, were poor in the 18th century and that's no longer true. How has that happened? And economic historians are focused on that question. They're not really interested in the effects of crises, which are short-term phenomenon. They might have frequently, but are short-term phenomenon. And they're not interested in the carry trade, which doesn't really generate wealth in the long term. You can make profits in the short term from it, but overall, those profits in the good times are netted off by losses when, when the carry trade collapses and periods when the carry trade collapses. So this isn't a way of generating wealth. This isn't a way of generating productivity growth. Um, and therefore, it's not really interested of interest to economic historians interested in long-run economic growth. However, part of my argument is that we should be more interested in short-run disruptions uh, to economic growth caused by banking crises in the short term. This is because of recent research by Stephen Broadbury and John Wallace, which has shown that economic growth in the modern period isn't because growth is actually improving in years of growth. It's not that we're growing faster when in the good times. In fact, if anything, the average rate of growth in the good times has actually slowed down in recent times. 
What's going on, they've discovered, is in fact, in the last few centuries, the number of recessions has reduced. The frequency of those recessions has gone down. The severity and length of those recessions have, have gone down. So in fact, the history of modern economic growth is actually because crises and recessions are overall getting less severe. But if they're getting more severe, which they have been in British economic history in the last 50 years, that should be a great case for worry because that will slow slow down and actually has slowed down long-run economic growth. So we should be interested in the carry trade. We should be interested in when the carry trade collapses. We should be interested in financial crises and banking collapses because they do affect the long run. In aggregate, they do affect the long run. They do damage long-run economic growth. And as I've said before, Britain has had, since 2008 crisis, has had a growth problem. If we're interested in fixing that, if we're interested in long-run economic growth, we also have to be interested in crises in the short term, carry collapses in the short term, and the long-term consequences of those blow-ups. That seems like a sensible thing we should be paying attention to. Is there anything else we need to know about how the carry trade is linked to financial crises um, before we continue? Uh, Yes. So um, you might ask, well, how does this link to the other bit of the title of the book? So the carry trade, the banking school and British financial crises since 1825. It links to certainly to the, the banking school bit in that the banking school were a group of Victorian economists in the 19th century who collectively created a theory of financial crises. Why are there periods where of financial fragility and what's of, what are they caused by? And they thought they were caused by what we would now today call the carry trade. So they, their theory was um, circular. So they thought that at um, the start of the cycle, Um, You have low interest rates in one country or area, and you have high interest rates in another. And that creates investment flows from the country or area with low interest rates to a country of area of high interest rates. And that gradually raises asset prices in the place with high interest rates. And eventually, because of arbitrage between those interest rates, those interest rates will drift together. Sometimes that's helped by an external event or a shock which might push up interest rates in one of the countries. And when the interest rates in those two areas or sectors or countries converge, when they're the same, there's no point in borrowing or moving capital from one country or area or sector to another. And those investment flows stop. Now, that stop of capital flows, that sudden stop, creates a credit crunch in one or both of those countries, the sender and the recipients of the funds. Uh, People are unable to finance their borrowings, and that um, creates a bank, eventually will create a banking panic, or the banks will start to collapse because they can't finance themselves. They also become very rumbleable in situations where short-term rates rise above long-term rates, particularly banks and other investors who borrowed in the short term to lend long. If the interest rates, short-term interest rates rise above long-term interest rates, their business model basically no longer works and you have um, a banking collapse or a banking panic on your hands. And they eventually think that after a crisis, interest rates will then 
fall after a crisis or be in reaction to the crisis and the process starts again. So they think there's this circular model of driven by the carry trade. Um, and the point is, is that this is fundamental to their understanding of Victorian financial crises and fundamental to their prescriptions of how these crises can be prevented or um, reduced in severity, how to calm the storms that are caused by this, you know, um, in this cycle. Um, Thank you for explaining um, how all those pieces go together. I think it um, sounds very sort of straightforward when you explain it that way. Um, and makes it all the more clear what the contribution of the book is to bring all of these things into um, our understanding rather than leaving them perhaps where they've been forgotten um, in the 1800s. And you mentioned the banking school, and I want to kind of get a bit more into this because it's really quite key to understanding these big questions of um, what happens and how can we stop it. So could you tell us more about the banking school and the currency school and what they were arguing about before this magical period of no financial crises? What were they mad at each other about? What were they debating in the early 1800s? Well, many of your listeners will have heard of Keynesians and monetarists, but they are unlikely to have heard of the British banking school and the British currency school. But they have a very, very important role in the history of economic thought. And this book argues that they are more important for history of economic thought than has previously been recognised by many scholars. So the previous scholarship of the subject tends to look at the debate between these two schools in very technical terms. They tend to present them as having a very technical dispute about whether central banks should have strict limits on the amount of banknote issuance they are allowed to do or not. So the Currency School was a great supporter of the Bank Charter Act of 1844, which said, which laid down very strict limits for the amount of banknote issuance that the Bank of England was allowed to do. It was had to be based on a certain um, certain multiple of its, its um, gold reserves. So above a certain limit, it had to have a one-to-one ratio of gold in its reserves compared to the notes, the banknotes it was allowed to issue. The banking school were a heterodox grouping of economists who opposed this legislation, who collectively opposed this legislation. But my book argues actually this is a much bigger dispute in economic thought in Victorian Britain, which modern economics and modern historians of economic thought tend to paper over the cracks. So these two groupings get shoved together as being the classical school. But in reality, the debate between these schools of thought was very vicious and lasted a long time. And the, the dispute comes down to the belief about whether they believe the quantity theory of money affects inflation in the short term. So the quantity theory of money is the idea that inflation and pro- changes in the price level are directly caused by changes in the amount of money there is in circulation. So the currency school thought that this applied in the short term, that if you issue more banknotes, you will immediately get more inflation. 
The banking school, on the other hand, did believe that there was a connection between the two in the long term, but they didn't think that it would necessarily apply in the short term. There are other factors which would affect things in the short term. And this meant that they disagreed on numerous other issues. So, for example, the currency school believed that um, capital flows between countries were purely caused by trade flows. So that's by imports and exports. The banking school thought that, in fact, most capital flows between countries were investment flows driven by differences in interest rates between different countries. The currency school also believed that interest rates had nothing to do with investment flows between countries and had nothing to do with banknote issuance in the economy. The currency school, however, thought that interest rates and central bank changing interest rates did affect capital flows between countries and does affect uh, banknote issuance in the economy and the amount of credit there is in the in in, in the economy uh, and they also disagreed on what causes financial crises so the currency school thought that that crises were caused by overissuance of banknotes whereas the banking school thought that crises were caused by the mismanagement of monetary policy and indeed caused by part of some of the restrictions the currency school tried to introduce with the Bank Charter Act of 1844. And they also believed that they were due to a mismanagement of the carry trade by with monetary policy, particularly situations where policymakers and central banks keep interest rates too low for too long and then raise interest rates too late, too sharply and too rapidly, and in so doing, causing banking crises, a a relationship or other argument the current school didn't really understand. So these two schools have very different views about a range of economic uh, ideas, a range of economic debates. It's not an aritactical debate, it's a very big one. And you could also see that their ideas have been connected to much larger intellectual hinterlands. So the currency school, um, for example, tended to derive from the slave owning interest in Britain. The big original big debate between the banking school and the currency school was the currency school was a supporter of um, the British government borrowing money to pay compensation, not to the slaves being freed um, in slave abolition in the 1830s, but to the slave owners. Whereas the banking school opposed that, firstly, from on moral grounds, that if anyone deserves compensation, it's the slaves, not the slave owners. But also that by borrowing and issuing all this new money, this was going to destabilise the British banking system and going to have negative effects um, in Britain as well. So the banking school tended to oppose um, slavery and the slave-owning interests of the slave-owning um, class. They also tend to have different religious views. So um, the banking school tended to be Arminian and tended to be mild Calvinists, whereas the current school tends to be more extreme forms of Calvinist. So there's a much bigger philosophical divide, how they look at society, how they think society should be run, than simply seeing this as a minor debate about 
of behavior issues banknotes. It's a much bigger economic, philosophic, and philosophical divide. And, but it meant that the two schools had very different views about what caused financial crises and banking crises and how to prevent financial crises and banking crises in the future. Thank you for explaining um, the debates, but also the stakes of the debates. Um, I think that that's really important um, for kind of contextualizing what was happening and the impact that kind of it would have in terms of which of these ideas about the different causes um, sort of got enacted when it comes to putting this sort of stuff into practice. So could you tell us about how these arguments and debates sort of then get cemented to a degree or how do they end up impacting the laws and the policies around the Banking Act, around financial institutions that were developed during this time? So in the 19th century, essentially the currency school had a victory, as in um, the letter of law was changed to be in line with the currency school's ideas. But the banking school had a de facto victory in that Many of our ideas did eventually triumph of how to manage the financial system and prevent the imperfect laws put in place by the currency school doing too much damage. So the currency school's great triumph was the Bank Charter Act of 1844, which put strict limits on the amounts of notes that were allowed to be issued by the Bank of England. Um, and saying that they had to be back one-to-one with gold reserves above a certain fiduciary level. Now, as I've argued in the first book, the 1844 Bank Charter Act contributed to the 1847 financial crisis, which reduced the consequences of which reduced the amount of money which was available for Irish famine relief during the Great Irish Famine of the late 1840s, which caused Ireland's population to drop in a period of just five or six years by a quarter. So this was a great triumph for the currency school. However, banking school ideas um, gra- gradually came to dominate um, dominate the Bank of England, partly because of the negative effects of the 1844 Bank Charter Act. The Bank Charter Act, rather than making crises less frequent and less severe, made them more frequent and more severe, and banking school policies came to dominate um, as the decades went on. Um, came to influence the Bank of England in its thinking of how to use monetary policy in a way which made crises less frequent and less severe. So, for example, quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, you know, if you ask many 18-year-olds in an economics or history class in Cambridge, if you say who invented quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, they say, oh, it was invented after the 2008 global financial crisis. In fact, that's not true. It was invented by the Bank of England and a banking school governor of the Bank of England in the 1830s in order to try to reduce the impact of the capital flows and the currency trade in order to try to make crises less severe in the 1830s. Um, Likewise, um, later on, the Bank of England starts changing the way it uses monetary policy in order to make banking crises less frequent and less severe in Britain in the 1850s, 60s and 70s. And so although the currency school's ideas were written to the letter of law, and the 1844 Bank Charter Act is still in UK law today, 
It is the Bank Charter Act of 1844, which makes pound sterling legal tender in England and gives the Bank of England a monopoly over note printing or printing of banknotes, which are legal tender tender in England still. Um, Although parts of it are suspended, including the the, um, saying that banknotes have to be backed by gold in the vaults of the Bank of England, that bit's suspended. Um, suspended. So that shows you how long this legislation has had influence. Um, it was passed in 1844, and it tended to be that, that the Bank of England's charters were rewritten every decade or so. So for this piece of legislation to last uh, nearly 180 years now shows you how long-lasting the influence of the currency school was, that this was tempered by the influence of the banking school, which developed in the mid-19th century over policymakers who developed workarounds and strategies of how to deal with the problems caused by the currency school's laws. So that's what we're going to get into, those workarounds. Um, So how did the banking school think that financial crises could be prevented or mitigated? So the way that much of the literature is currently written is they focus on the Bank of England discovering its role as lender of last resort. So this idea was popularised in a book written by the then editor of The Economist called Walter Badgett's and became known as Badgett's Dictum. The idea that in a crisis, a political bank can calm the, the crisis by acting as a lender of last resort. So this means that rather than tightening credit in a crisis, it should expand the amount of credit, should lend freely, but at a penalty rate. However, the point is, is that if you prevent this to Badgett today, the way he's been written up in history as this is the way you prevent a crisis, uh, he would be quite shocked. He thought this was a a way of how to deal with a crisis once it started, but this wasn't really what he was saying would prevent a crisis. In any case, it took the Bank of England a lot longer after 1866 than some of the literature currently says for it really to embrace that role. It was very uncomfortable with that role for several decades. And although it was true that by the end of the 19th century, it was at acting as a lender of last resort. This is certainly not true in the aftermath of 1866, when the directors of the Bank of England, which was a private company, and those directors of the bank owed their duty to its shareholders to profit maximise, they didn't think this was necessarily something the Bank of England should be taking on. Instead, Badger thought, before you get to that um, terrible position where you have a banking panic on your hands. You have to beat the bank. Of, the central bank has to act as lender of last resort. He instead thought there were several other policies you have to do. The first one was changing the way monetary policy is used. So the problem is that the Bank Charter Act in the middle of the 19th century incentivized interest rates being kept very low for very long periods of time. And then just before a crisis, in some ways causing that crisis, suddenly raising them very sharply, very late in the cycle in order to deal with an emergency, such as an external shock or a budget which went wrong, such as the 1847 budget, which triggered eventually triggered the 1847 financial crises in Britain. Um, so a shock comes in from abroad or from a, um, a fiscal policy misstep, and that pushes up market interest rates, and the bank has to raise its 
interest rate to match the market. Something like that happens, and it suddenly has to raise interest rates very sharply. And in 1847, 1857, 1866, those interest rates hit record levels. A new record was set just before each of those crises. And the point is the banking system wasn't prepared each time for interest rates to reach a new record high. I mean, because you can't really prepare for a situation which has never occurred before to occur again. Um, And Badgett thought that this was very damaging to the banking system. If it encouraged um, banks to engage in risky behaviour, and then it prevented them really from developing sensible risk management strategy because they just didn't know how high interest rates were going to go to. Instead, he argued that interest rates needed to rise earlier in the cycle. So as soon as inflation appeared or there was a bullion drain or a shock occurred abroad, the Bank of England needed to start raising its interest rates but in baby steps, not in large steps, not rapidly. And the result is that interest rates became more stable. You didn't have these periods of ultra-low interest rates followed by sudden rises to record levels, but there was a much smoother increase and decrease in interest rates in this period. And Badgett thought this was very important. He also thought it was important for the Bank of England not to raise short-term interest rates much above long-term interest rates. And he also thought it was important for both the Bank of England to develop a bigger reserve in order so that interest rates didn't need to rise very quickly when there was a shock or a bullion drain. He thought the central bank needed reserves, greater reserves, but he also thought other banks in the banking system needed greater reserves as well. And so those were the banking school policies to reduce this relationship or make the relationship less strong between monetary policy causing financial crises. Basically, by a smoother use of monetary policy with slower but earlier rises in interest rates, you can prevent the sudden jumps or sudden increases in interest rates to record levels which were triggering these severe banking crises in the mid-19th century. So we've got some of these important pieces of legislation, which, as you mentioned, it's unusual for them to have lasted this long, um, that have a lot of currency school ideas in them. We now know what the banking school wants to do instead. How does the banking school implement these ideas and what effect does it have? Um, So essentially, um, by the Bank of England changing Um, the way it used monetary policies, the the events which were triggered the crises in 47, 57, 66 stopped happening. So the Bank of England did not raise interest rates to a new record during um, periods of difficulty in the late 19th century. So after the new record interest rate set in the crisis of 1866, that level of interest rate was not exceeded again until the middle of 1973, which was just a few months before the secondary banking crisis of 1973 began. Um, So it avoided doing that. It also avoided putting short-term rates much far above long-term rates. And it also prevented raising interest rates in Britain or short-term interest rates in Britain above those in America at the time as well, which was another trigger for the previous crises. Um, Furthermore, it enlarged its reserves. It did this by 
um, making sure it accumulated greater reserves in the good times. It also did this by some underhand tactics, such as taking gold from the reserves of Britain's colonies, which is a less perhaps a perhaps a um, less um, less positive um, legacy of the set of policies. But it, this created greater banking stability in Britain because the Bank of England had bigger bullion reserve. And the result of this was that there weren't any severe systemic crises which saw lots of banks collapse between 1866 until 1973. So there was over a century in which there weren't the, uh, these severe and regular uh, banking crises, which all large parts of the banking system collapse, as there were in yeah, 1825, 1837, 1837, 1847, 1857, 1867, idea that there would be a run on a British bank by the 1960s was seen as completely absurd. This was equal in absurdity to the other absurd scenes in that movies when uh, they have a tea party on the ceiling with Uncle Albert. They all float up to the ceiling and have a tea party against the ceiling. And also the other scene where they jump into a chalk pavement picture and Mary Poppins managed to win 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 a um, the Grand National on a cartoon horse, and then they sing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Those scenes were meant to be as silly, as unbelievable as the bank run scene, because that scene had not happened by the time that film was released in the 1960s for 100 years. So that was how good this set of policies were. And that that's, that created an era and Britain's reputation for banking stabilities, which was the envy of many other countries around the world until that point. In fact, if I'm remembering correctly, in Mary Poppins, there's a song about the sort of stability of the British bank. Um, I might have to go look that up after this. I'm sure there's listeners who are shouting at me right now of whether or not that's right. Um but this does, I mean, that that is such a kind of stunning idea that it was as unrealistic for something to go wrong as some of the other things in Mary Poppins. But of course, we already know that uh, this streak does not continue. We have the banking crisis in the 1970s, and of course, we have 2008. So why did this period that never seemed to end, What? why did it all go wrong? Well, while the Sherman brothers were writing the soundtrack for Mary Poppins about how stable British banks were and how they were the envy of the world, little did they know that um, this system, this policy regime, which had existed for a century, was um, hitting the buffers. So... In, in the 1960s, uh, by the 1960s, the Bank of England had been nationalised by the, the British government, and there was a succession of prime ministers which weren't allowing um, the Bank of England to raise interest rates when it needed, so raise interest rates early in the cycle. Um, and this was causing a problem. This even triggered resignation of one of the governors of the Bank of England in the late 1960s. Um, and so Bank tried to come up with a new policy which would um, 
help um, or depoliticize, make it politically easier or depoliticize um, raises in rises in interest rates. Um, this was called competition and credit control, and it came into force in 1971. At the same moment, the Bretton's Wood system of international exchange rates collapsed as well. So that came in 1971, and that swept away many of the banking schools' um, policies. But worse still, it also failed to um, depoliticize interest rate increases. The government of Ted Heath in the early 70s refused to allow interest rates to rise. There were two too many um too many businesses and too many too many people with mortgages who would be affected by interest rate rise and he constantly put it off and the result was that there was this big growth in credit that um, caused by interest rates being kept too low for too long and the Bank of England the government realized the error of their way in 1973 where they tried to cool the economy um, by raising interest rates very um, sharply and they reached a new record. They beat the 1866 record in terms of interest rates. But the point was the British banking system became too, too, too fragile. Um, it got becoming gorged on very cheap credit. And then the sudden rises in interest rates, just like the crises in 40, 1847, 1857 and 1866, triggered a, a banking collapse, the secondary banking crisis, which the economists said this was a, just like a rerun of the Victorian banking crisis. It was a traditional bank banking crisis reoccurred. And the point was, this was not a global banking crisis. This was just something that happened in Britain due to bad British policy. So the lessons developed at great cost over 100 years ago in the 19th century were forgotten in a period of less than a decade. And similar mechanisms related to interest rates and monetary policy can be seen as contributing to the 2008 crisis, um, the global crisis and also the crisis in Britain 2008 um, um, can also be seen as contributing to Britain getting very close to a full-scale financial panic last autumn in the aftermath of Liz Truss's ill-fated mini-budget and also in the March 2023 um, banking panic in America. Similar mechanism can be seen. So you can see the lessons learned at great cost in the 19th century working in creating Britain's reputation for banking stability for a century, and then that being lost in the 90, early 1970s, and Britain is yet to regain that reputation for stability. Could you tell us about that most recent one, the Silicon Valley bank collapse in March 2023, and what the book has to say about that? So the book was launched the day before Silicon Valley Bank collapsed in early March 2023. And the collapse of SVB triggered a wider collapse or wider panic in the US banking system. Um, and I predicted at the launch that the next crisis would be as a result of interest rate risk. Because one of the things that the banking score emphasised is that Financial crises are caused by the mismanagement of interest rate risk, particularly the mis mismanagement of monetary policy, which results in rapid rises in interest rates and banking managements as well, which don't uh, don't run their affairs in a way um, which means that they can cope with those rapid rises in 
interest rates. And I predicted that it would be interest rate risk which created the next um, banking panic or banking collapse. And little I did I know how quickly I would be correct in that we've learned the lessons from a lack, you know, from credit risk, and we've learned lessons from liquidity risk from the 2008 crisis, but we've been ignoring the risks from interest rates, particularly rapid rises in interest rates. And it was rapid rises in interest rates which fell Silicon Valley Bank. So the, the three mechanisms for banking school emphasised in the 19th centuries are the three mechanisms which eventually caused Silicon Valley Bank to collapse. So those are rapid periods of rapid rises of interest rates. Those are uh, The second one is uh, central banks pushing up short-term interest rates above long-term interest rates. And the third one is letting the carry trade get out of control. And policymakers have linked all those three things to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the wider panic in the US banking system in March 2023. And so I said in the book, and little did I know that later on in March 2023, this actually became a Financial Times headline, was that policymakers were like generals fighting the last war in that they they saw the thought the lessons of 2008 crisis were they had to manage credit risk better and they had to manage liquidity risk better but they ignored interest rate risk which they didn't see as was as an important factor in 2008 and therefore th- that was um, it was something they missed and therefore it was something which created the next crisis next crisis. So that in some ways confirmed that my approach was right one. In order to prevent future crises, we can't look at the immediate previous one. I'm not saying that we shouldn't look at the previous one, but we need to look at banking crises using a more long durée approach. We need to look at the last two centuries because there haven't been that many banking crises in Britain. Um, you know, there have been some in the last 50 years, but none in the 100 years before that. So to look at the previous period when there's severe and frequent financial crises, we have to look at the middle of the 19th century. And because and looking at that, if we had looked at that, if policymakers had been paying attention to the long durée, the last 200 years, they would have spotted that interest rate risk is important in triggering periods of financial fragility in which there are banking collapses and banking crises. And therefore, we have to think about how do we reduce the um, amount of interest rate risk in the economy, either by changing the way we use monetary policy and or making sure that institutions are better able to deal with rapid rises in interest rates if we want to see banking collapses, banking crises become less frequent and severe in the future. So aside from looking back the last 200 years um, and spotting things from it, which certainly seems possible, what should current policymakers be doing? What should they be taking from the ideas of the banking school, um, not just looking backwards, but maybe perhaps more than that? What, what should they be doing? Now, there, there are some lessons which are less relevant today. So there's no need to increase the amount of gold reserves at banks because most countries no longer uh, peg their currencies to gold. So um, some of the prescriptions related to the gold standards are less relevant, but there are still lots of relevant prescriptions to take. 
one of which is the way of thinking about how a best, better ways in which monetary policy can be used. So the point is, is that at the moment, because monetary policy is all about fighting inflation, we don't think about the relationship between monetary policy and financial stability. And the result of that is that central banks now use monetary policy just like Victorian, you know, the, the Victorian Bank of England did. So keeping interest rates very low for very long periods of time. And then as soon as inflation appears, you get very rapid rises in interest rates to deal with an unanticipated inflation shock. So the 2010s, interest rates were kept at record lows for a long, long period of time. Then central banks let a load of inflationary pressure appear. And once the horse had bolted, they tried to lock the stable door by raising interest rates very um, very fast, but too late to deal with the inflation. And that was one of the prescriptions from the banking school was how to deal with that situation. The deal, the way you deal with it is that you make sure you don't leave interest rates too low for too long. As soon as there's inflationary pressure, as soon as there's a bubble start to appear in the economy, as soon as the carry trade gets out of control, you need to start raising interest rates earlier in the cycle. Now, you do that in baby steps, so people get more used to the idea of the interest rates are on their way, and therefore uh, the banks can better protect themselves from rises in interest rates. But the point is, if the Bank of England had acted earlier in raising interest rates, albeit maybe by only little amounts, and by ending quantitative easing earlier in 2021, they might have got the economy, people in the economy, to expect inflation to remain lower um, than, it, than, than it was. And so if they kept inflation expectations anchored at a low rate, we wouldn't have seen the level of inflation that we had in the past year or two, and we wouldn't need interest rates to rise as fast or as high as, as they now have. So that is one lesson is that monetary, the, the connection between monetary policy and financial crises need to be recognised and monetary policy could be used in a smoother way than it has previously. But I think the important lesson is that in reaction to this crisis, the answer, the answer isn't to say, oh, well, we need to cut interest rates now because that would just create another boom which could create the, the next financial crash eventually. Um Instead, it's a recognition that as soon as there's inflationary pressure in the future, as soon as we see asset bubbles and things like you know, the crypto world was the you know, the key sign that something was going wrong and you know, going wrong, there's too much you know, money floating around, too much liquidity floating around the global system. That was the moment in which interest rates needed to rise, albeit by, by baby steps, by small amounts. So I think in the next cycle, we need to think about how we raise interest rates, although by small amounts earlier in the cycle, to prevent the rapid rises in interest rates at the end of the cycle that we've seen in this cycle, which has triggered financial instability um, in America and also around the world in the past few months. Now that you've explained to us um, what policymakers, the lessons they should be learning and what we hopefully can all watch them do better next time, um, I only have one question left, uh, also looking ahead, but perhaps on a more micro level. You've just published, as you've mentioned, two books. We've been lucky enough to interview you about both of them. What might you be working on now or next? 
Um, well, I'm I'm currently writing my third book, so um, uh, so I'll soon have a hat trick of books, I suppose. And and this this book looks at the 1847 crisis, and it's using it as a case study to say that we should stop looking at British banking crises as little local events of pro-cool importance for the city of London. These had big negative consequences around the world. When the city of London had a cough, the rest of the British Empire would catch cold or, or flu or, or even die of famine. Um, what One clear example of that is the impact the 1847 financial crisis had on Ireland and the Irish famine, but it's also the impact the 1847 crisis had on other places around the world. So in the Caribbean, wages of freed labourers halved. Um, There was also massive banking collapses there. In India, it caused um, the local governments there to have to raise taxes considerably, which triggered a wave of civil unrest. But worse still was the long-term consequences of of short-term events. And that was that in the period between the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in the 1830s and 1847, there was a range of financial institutions across the British Empire which had been developed, which was trying to help indigenous populations and newly freed slaves, um, from uh, trying to help them gain a financial stake in their society. So taking in deposits, and the intention was that they would lend in order to help these places in the world develop in, and also reduce inequality by enabling people to take out loans to buy land. Um, and indeed, these institutions were doing you know, really great work in some places in the mid-1840s. So in Barbados in the mid-1840s, one of the banks there um, lent for the first time in order to help um, indigenous, um, the, um, the um, newly free slaves um, whose houses were destroyed in a hurricane to rebuild. Um, um, and they were also encouraging land ownership by former slaves or indigenous populations, depending on which part of the world they were in. But the point is, is the contagion, the financial contagion, which came out of the city of London in 1847, wiped out this new wave of financial institutions which were trying to promote financial inclusion after the abolition of slavery. And this, not only in many parts of the British Empire, had really negative effects. It caused um, potential reduction in inequality between um, form, former slave owners and former slaves to it stop that, from, that inequality from reducing. It also contributed to underdevelopment in various parts of the world, um, British Empire in various parts of the world. So I think we have to see the negative impact of colonialism, not just in the way way um, it's often described, not simply about slavery itself, although that's still very important. But even after slavery was abolished, it was these waves of financial contagion coming out of London and sweeping around the British Empire and the wider world, which had negative effects on the world. So the currency school has a lot to answer for. It's not just, you know, the effects of their policies are not just being bad for British history. It's also been bad for global history and places that Britain colonised as well. And that is what my next book is is focusing on, using that as a case study of that phenomenon, the waves of financial contagion coming out of the city of London having negative effects on various places around the world. 
Well, that sounds like a very interesting way to complete, as you said, a hat trick of books. Um, So while you are off doing that, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again, titled Calming the Storms, The Carry Trade, The Banking School and British Financial Crises Since 1825. Uh, Just come out in 2023 from Paul Grave Macmillan. Charles, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me and thank you everyone for listening.